Mm. Stop it. <laughs> oh, Doug, thank you. I love you. Um, it's very humbling, all those lies you just told, so whatever. <laughs> I am delighted uh, to be with you again. Bonnie and I both are, um, this being our sixth year, it, it really is an amazing thing to be able to come back and then come back and every year I feel like we get a little uh, deeper into all of the, what's wrong with you guys anyway. <laughs> that isn't true. More and more I'm in love with you and knowing uh, what God is doing among you, to have friends like Doug and Heidi is a gift. Um, to be more and more connected to this community uh, over the years is also a gift and we're especially happy to be with you in this season. You come every year, and you just kind of smell what's going on. I don't know all the details, but, but when, when Liz stood up to preach last Sunday, and I knew what that was about because she was going to be voted on and take over this position. I remember a year ago when things were kind of unsettled around that whole position and some other things as well, and, 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 and um, what came over me was as she was speaking, it spoke to her very presence spoke to some changes here that speak to the faithfulness and provision of God among you. Um, for this particular church, Hope Covenant Church, um, I see Brandon leading worship. Uh, he wasn't doing that here. Well, he did now and then. Um, I met Devin as well, one of your youth associates, and Brianna in kids ministry. There's just some things that are going on that I think make these days uh, things that need to be marked and remembered by you as a church. And I'm saying this from someone from the outside coming in and noticing some things that I'm sure you notice, but they need to be marked, I think. Joshua 4, the people of God had just crossed the Jordan River. Big event, having wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. Wow. And Joshua, after they're all across, it says, go back into the middle of the river where the Levites still are, pick up 12 stones, uh, one for each tribe of Judah, and, and, and they called them stones of remembrance. And then you build an altar with those stones, and, and the, the whole point was there were stones of remembrance, and the whole point was, and when your children ask you what do these stones mean, tell them these stones mean God is faithful. These stones mean God will make a way. And so last week as I was listening to Liz preach and reflecting on your journey as a church, uh, Liz being here, Brandon leading worship, the things that are going on here, what do these things mean? They mean God will make a way. They mean God is faithful. And, and I, I hope you can find ways in your spirit somehow to mark those things because we don't always feel those things. He always is faithful. You can't always see the evidence of that. And this is one of those seasons. I'm, being too, I'm getting into your stuff too much here. Let me get to the talk. Um, part of what I'm excited about too is is where you are in the text. And Doug always gives me a lot of freedom. But I know you're going through the book of Luke. Um, Jesus for everyone is the theme. And when I talked to Doug a few weeks ago about this, he pointed me to Luke chapter 4, which is where we would be today, beginning in verse 14. And I was thrilled about that. I, I wanted to just stay in the series that you're in. Let me just kind of set the scene for you. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. It's a pivotal, it's a pivotal time in the life and ministry of Jesus, where we find Jesus returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Part of the reason he was full of the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, is he's just coming off of the baptism of John and the blessing of the Father in chapter 3. He's just endured the 40 days in the wilderness in the temptation of the evil one in chapter 4. His public ministry is now coming into 
view as news about him is beginning to spread to all, to all sorts of different areas, all through the districts, and he's beginning to teach in the synagogues. It says in verse 15, and everywhere he goes, he's getting rave reviews. He's being praised by all. And then in verse 16, this is actually the text for today, he comes to Nazareth. Look at it on the screen. So he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and I can't get the page apart. There we go. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, especially when he began saying to them this in verse 21. Today, the scripture that I just read is being fulfilled in your hearing. And they knew what that meant. And they wanted it to be true. Because if it was, he was declaring to be the long-awaited one. If it was true what he just read, he was declaring himself to be the anointed one, the fulfillment of their messianic hope and their kingdom of God expectation. And the kingdom of God expectation that Jews were living with in the first century was simply this, that one day, hopefully soon, they expected it soon, God would break through into human history through the nation Israel and through someone in Israel, a Messiah of some sort. And when he did break through, everything that was wrong with the world would be made right, which included um, especially the problem that they were living with under the oppression uh, of Rome. It was the promise of the prophets, this coming kingdom reality, who had spoken of a time, did the prophets, like in places like, in places like Isaiah chapter 2, when swords would be made into plowshares and, and, and spears into pruning hooks, meaning there would be no more war. When the lion would lie down with the lamb, the cow and the bear would graze together. The dog would make peace with the squirrel, and the cat would be no more. <laughs> okay, that's funny, or not, whatever. And everyone, okay, back to the story, was speaking well of him. Um, and they were wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips, thrown into wonderment, is, is how Liz described it last week. They were amazed by him until they weren't <laughs> because in what seemed like the blink of an eye if you read the text this is what kind of drew me to this whole thing uh the people turned like on a dime indeed it's the most stunning part of this text to me and there's a lot of amazing things that doug's gonna unpack unpack next week because the stunning thing was that they were they went from being filled with wonder in verse 22 to being filled with rage rage <laughs> After wonder, in verse 28, from everyone speaking well of him in verse 22 to driving him out of the city, wanting to throw him off a cliff and kill him in verse 29. And while there are some explanations as to why they turned on him, including some provocative and confrontive things that Jesus said in verses 23 through 27 about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and 
who had favor with God and who didn't. And Jesus kind of challenged their thinking on some of that. Um, what I want to examine, and by the way, Doug is going to unpack some of the things that he said that did provoke this response. What I want to examine and unpack this week um, is this turning of the crowd thing, because it was a pattern. It, it wasn't just, if it was just happened here, this would just be some offbeat thing. But this was a pattern from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end of his ministry, where over and over again, the response to Jesus was that on the front end, people would often be amazed by him, eager to follow him. Maybe the best example and earliest one in the whole story is in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is beginning to call his disciples. But when Jesus said to them, remember Peter and, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, he said to them, come follow me. And what? Immediately. They did. Bang. Right. Well, that's pretty quick. Eager. To follow, were they on an individual level? But then came the crowds. So it wasn't just individual. The crowds came just a few verses later in Matthew 4, 25. Multitudes, in fact, and they were astonished, the crowds were. He says in Mark 6, at the wisdom with which he spoke. And that he spoke as one having authority, but he had power as well as he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, according to Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4, even casting out demons, the result of which uh, were predictable. More people came. Uh, the word spread. The crowds grew larger. More people followed. And then, but, but, but then, and, and this is the pattern. The crowds would grow. And the pattern, however, was this. Almost as quickly as they would come, and be drawn, they would lose interest um, and fall away. They would begin to withdraw from him. Oh, there's something going on. I guess not like that. Thus beginning what was actually a very strange and, and sometimes strained relationship that Jesus had with the multitudes, with the crowd, because on one hand, Jesus could draw a crowd. Um, something, by the way, that in our day, uh, would be seen as a positive thing, uh, a sign of success if you're a pastor or leader and you have a big church, a lot of people. I don't need to tell you anything more. It's big, it's good, like that. Um, a sign of success, a measurable outcome, which we're always looking for in ministry, and it's hard to measure how people are growing in Christ, but we can measure a crowd, so that's something that feels kind of good. But um, Jesus knew some things about the crowd. First, that it was fickle. He knew the crowds were fickle. He didn't hate the crowd, but knew that they were fickle. Even a cheering crowd can turn on a dime, and when you have a multitude of people, um, you never really know uh, why they're here. You don't know what they really want. You can maybe think they do, but you, you, you really don't. Indeed, sometimes, and this, I think, speaks to the strained relationship you have with the crowd sometimes. Sometimes he was the one who would, draw, would withdraw from them. Um, Matthew 5, verse 1. Matthew 4, he called the disciples. Then he started proclaiming the kingdom, the end of Matthew 4, and he was healing all these diseases, news spread. People were coming from all over the place. Multitudes were coming, chapter 5, verse 1. He, seeing the multitude, Jesus does something that no megachurch pastor I know would ever do. He withdraws from the multitude. Oh, there's a multitude, let's get away. Um, no, let's keep the crowd, let's get it bigger. Anyway.
And sometimes he would leave the multitude, not because of Matthew 5 verse 1 reasons, but sometimes he would leave in the middle of the action like he was healing them and ministry was happening and there were more people who wanted to be affected by him. And in the middle of all of that, he would leave the disciples. Oh, what are you going? There's still more people. There's a line waiting to talk to you. And he would just go home and have lunch. Not really. He would go off to a solitary place. And it's not that he hated the crowd. I think it's important. It didn't, he didn't resent the crowd. I mean, there are some that, I'll, that I hear, in, even in ministry, there's kind of a movement sometimes that, that big is bad automatically. No, it's not. He didn't hate the crowd. He didn't think it's bad. Um, because in places like John 6, Luke 9, Mark 8, he fed the crowd. Fed 5,000, fed 4,000 on another occasion. He proclaimed the kingdom to the crowd. He healed the sick among the crowd. He had compassion for the crowd. At one point, he said, he looked at the multitude and, and said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for the crowd. But he didn't, important, uh, pander to the crowd. He didn't chase after the crowd. He didn't take his cues from the crowd, like, I wonder what they would like. I'll do that. I can't even imagine Jesus doing that. He didn't follow the crowd. He wasn't enamored by the crowd. Didn't resent it, but he didn't go, wow, I've arrived. It wasn't that. In part, I think, because he knew the crowd. And not just personally, but he knew about crowds and multitudes. And what he knew about the crowd was that you don't know <laughs> when you got a crowd. Um, I've been a pastor of a church, and we had a crowd. At times, a multitude, some would call it. Um, and here's what you know about the crowd. You don't know what you're getting with the crowd. You don't know who they are, why they're here, what they want, what they really want. You don't know if they're followers or are they just fans. They like the songs we sing. They like the way you sing. They like the color of the whatever. They um, are cheering people, but you better keep it up. <laughs> Feel pressure of that? Indeed, there's this place where God, to the prophet Ezekiel, uh, gives a sad assessment, Ezekiel 33, and God says to Ezekiel, who's got quite a multitude of people singing his praises, I've got some bad news for you, Ezekiel. You're really not much more to them than a sensual song. You're, you're not much more to them than a sensual song sung by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. And that's, can you imagine how that's deflating Ezekiel? Um, for they hear your words and they love how you sing, but they don't practice what you say. They're not following this. They're, 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 they're a fan of yours. They're not a follower of Yahweh, of God. In the New Testament, it would be Jesus. They were just fans, which is at least part of why. Sometimes when Jesus saw the multitude, like he did in Matthew 5, verse 1, he would withdraw from them. But mostly it was the other way around. Um, the crowd would withdraw from him. Sometimes they would do it because the cost was just too high. Uh, a great example is the scribe comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 and says, um, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds like a great declaration of uh, commitment. And Jesus says, great, basically. Uh, but here's the deal. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, and the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head, and if you follow me, it might be that way for you, and that guy disappeared in the white space between the two verses. He just disappeared. And so for him, I, well, I'll follow you anywhere but there. So you get into the comfort zone thing, and they're out. And sometimes people withdraw because the show is over. 
It's just over. There's no more free food. Well, he feeds 5,000. That was great. Where's the food? There's no... Any dessert? No. Let's go home. Um, but mostly, they would leave. They would withdraw from him when he would clarify something. Um, when, when he would talk about what he meant by what he said about the kingdom of God. Oh, I love it when he talks about the kingdom of God. And then he would say, he would clarify what he meant by the kingdom of God. And they would go, ooh, I'm not sure I like it how he talks about it. He would clarify how it works, who has access to the kingdom of God. He would clarify that the kingdom that is now within your reach, that I am bringing, is not a power over kingdom. So put away your sword. That power over thing is not going to get anything done because you're bigger and louder and faster and richer or you're better with a sword. It isn't going to work in the kingdom of God. That way won't work along with every other way you think the kingdom comes and use kingdom in your mind as a metaphor for everything being made right, the way things ought to be right. And Jesus comes and says, well, everybody's got a way for that to happen. The zealots had a way. That was a way of rebellion. The, 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 the Romans had a way. That was the way of domination. We're just going to crush everybody who disagrees with us. That's a very popular way in the world Today, the Pharisees had a way that was become, let's just become more pure and religious than everyone else. The Sadducees and the Herodians had a way as well. And Jesus comes basically to say, none of those ways are the way. And when he would say things like that in a variety of ways, many would go, I'm not interested anymore because I thought I could use him to accomplish my So when he would clarify these things, and he clarified them all the time, they would often lose interest, withdraw, and sometimes they would become enraged. Um, classic example of that is Palm Sunday. <clears throat> when he entered Jerusalem, you can see the picture in your mind to the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. I remember when I was a kid, I didn't know what the word meant. I thought it meant hallelujah, hallelujah, this is praise. No, it's not. The word Hosanna doesn't mean hallelujah. The word literally means please save us now. And what they wanted to be saved from very specifically was the domination of Rome. They were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. What was the Passover about? That was when we were delivered from an oppressive system, Egypt and Pharaoh. And now we want it again. We want to come out from under the oppression of, 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 of Rome and make Israel great again. And the throne of David is back and we're on top so save us now. Hosanna was a request <laughs> to be on top again. <laughs> we'll crown you king, which is why they threw the coats in the road. That was a symbolic gesture relative to how in Israel they would coronate a king when a king was being affirmed as we will bow and serve you as the king. They would throw coats in the road, let him ride and walk on those coats it was an act of submission. It was a coronation of the king. And then the palm branches. As a kid, we had palm branches, and I just thought, this is nice. I don't know what it meant. To say that we, actually, they, they, um, the palm branches are a symbol of the Maccabean re revolt, 200 years before Jesus, led by a guy named Judas, whose nickname was Maccabeus. Um, um, and, and, and his nickname was the hammer. He was known as the hammer. And they really, 200 years before Jesus, they had come back into Jerusalem 
uh, restored the temple, and, and we got it back now. It didn't last long. But um, the palm branches had become a symbol of that Maccabean revolt. And so when you saw palm branches, they were telling him the kind of king they wanted him to be. We want you to be king. This kind of king, we're looking for a hammer. We're looking for power over that can wipe out the big bad Romans, but do it with a hammer. Hosanna, save us now, because the hammer, power over, that's the only way that works. But when they discovered he wouldn't save them the way they wanted to be saved with a hammer and a sword, their hosannas on Sunday turned to crucify him on Friday. Give us Barabbas, they said on Friday. Because the way of Jesus, not just Jesus, but the way of Jesus, riding on the colt of a donkey, there's no sword in sight. We're not going to pound anybody. It'll never work. That way won't work. Give us Barabbas way. Maybe the best illustration of this whole thing I'm trying to talk about, however, is found in John 6. Here's, here's why. It's not as much drama, but the whole, the whole picture is there. Let me set it up with this. In John chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus, in, in a sense, is at the top of his game. 5,000 people have gathered. It's the biggest following he's had so, so, so far. So in use, by the way, when you see 5,000 that's not including women and children. So there's a multitude of people. Um, but the multitude of people uh, created a problem. And the problem was this, that after a while they were hungry, so he did what you do. He fed them all uh, with five loaves and two fish. You know the story. He fed 5,000. At one time it was 4,000 he fed. In this text, 5,000, five loaves, two fish, but when he did that, it created another problem. News about him spread some more. Uh, and the crowds got even bigger, and they wanted even more. Do you have some dessert? Anyway. Uh, indeed, what the text says is they wanted to, they, they wanted to forcibly um, make him king. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I read it in the Bible, and it doesn't dawn on me, but I just think, Dave, we think you're the greatest. We want you to be king. Okay, whatever. That's what you want. Can't argue with the people. Anyway. No, he withdraws from them. He, he did, just like he did in Matthew 5. When he fed the 5,000, he withdrew from them to a mountain by himself, just like in Matthew 5, verse uh, 1. This is now in John 6, 15, because he knew, says he perceived that they were following him for all the wrong reasons. Um, they had their own agenda. And after he left, they kept looking for him, says in verse 22 of John 6. And when they found him, which they did in verse 25, the first thing Jesus says to them is not very seeker-friendly. Like, like uh, well, thank you for looking for me. I'm glad you came. First thing he says to them is, truly, I tell you, I know that you're here for all the wrong reasons. I know that you are looking for me, not because of the signs I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had you're Phil, you came for free food, and now you want more. Can you imagine saying that to people? Uh, um, I actually love it that he said that to people. It gives me permission to be rude. Anyway, anyway um, and then he starts to clarify some things. But he actually did when he said, I know why you're here. You're here for more food. Um, and part of what he clarifies is you just start reading through John 6. This is where it's fascinating. 
is, is that is, you, know, you, you had the physical loaves, but, but it's not physical bread um, that I've come to provide, at least not primarily. Because while physical bread, the kind that you had your fill of when I fed 5,000, has the capacity to nourish and to sustain physical life, which means physical bread is important. And it's why he fed them, because it matters that people are physically Fed, but it doesn't have the capacity to nourish and sustain spiritual life. And your spiritual life is your forever life, the one you will eternally have. And I am the bread you need for that kind of life. I am the bread of life. Verse 48. I am the bread of heaven. Verse 33. It's like he's piling on. I am the true bread of God, verse 32. I am the only bread, <laughs> uh, verse 34, that has the capacity to nurse and sustain the forever part of you, the eternal part of you. And when he started saying those things, in fact, after each verse, 48, 33, 32, they started to grumble. And then he would say it again. No, I'm the bread of God. No, I'm the bread from heaven. And they grumble. And they go, no, I'm, I'm the bread of life. And then they grumble and complain. And then, verse 52, they began to openly argue with each other about what Jesus was saying. But here's what's fascinating about Jesus. As they argued and grumbled, he didn't back down or soften his tone for fear, for fear they might get the wrong idea and maybe be offended. Uh, and he didn't dumb it down. He ramped it up. Was he just trying to pick a fight? No. No, but he did ramp it up. Expanding the metaphor of bread and what you eat physically and spiritually, expanding the metaphor beyond reason. In verse 53, 54, 55, 56, he says this bizarre thing that we've kind of gotten used to hearing, unless you eat my flesh. Stop right there. That's disgusting. And drink my blood. Ugh. Um, you have no part of me. Okay, here's the deal. He meant that. I mean, if you preach that, the metaphor is unless you, unless you ingest me and, and take me into the, 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 your soul, um, you, you have no part of me. But he used language, I'm, I promise you. Eat, drinking blood and eating flesh to a Jew, not good. To normal people, not good. What did I just say about Jews? <laughs> Not good. Um, in fact, this was so bizarre to them, it wasn't just the crowd anymore that was withdrawing. Many of his disciples, verse 66, began to withdraw from him as well and were not walking with him anymore. And it's just interesting, he didn't go after him. He didn't chase him down. He didn't change his message or soften his tone. To make it more appealing, he simply, he simply turns to the 12 and verse 67. <sighs> Multitude's gone. All I got to you. What about you? You gonna go? Um, and that's when Peter said these immortal words, where else are we gonna go? Which so sounds wonderful, but I picture like my wife being really angry with me and, and I, I go... Are you gonna Are you gonna go? And she goes, Where else am I gonna go? So it's not exactly a ringing endorsement. I was supposed to be funnier, and the first service laughed louder. I think it was my delivery. 
But then he does say, you know what he says next. Where else are we going to go? Only you have words of life. I ain't going anywhere. Because whatever the multitude is looking for, I'm looking for the life that comes from you, to which Jesus says, in effect, I think, especially as I contrast this with the multitude that we get so excited about and the 12, that, oh, what am I going to do with you? Jesus says, then I'll do it with you. I'll do it. I'll invest with you. It's not exactly like he says, forget about the crowd, but that's not where I'm investing because the crowd will come and go. I'll do it with you, the 12, because I'm looking for followers, not just fans. A couple things as I kind of wrap this up. One, one has a, a corporate way I want to apply this, and then more personal. Let's get to the corporate application first. And I'm, I'm kind of speaking as a pastor and someone who's led a church and cares about the big C church. Forty-some years ago, a small group of very sincere, unusually gifted young men and women in their early 20s on the south side of Chicago, I knew some of these people. I grew up in Chicago. They had a dream about it for, of a different kind of church that could maybe reach the culture primarily by creating a church that would feel familiar um, and less foreign to people who weren't used to kind of church-ishness. And they did some really good work around this, acknowledging the ways the church had isolated itself from the culture, um, uh, even becoming hostile at times to the culture. How are you going to get people to come to what we do or be part of what we believe in if we're hostile to them, don't even like them? And so they started, some asking, they started asking some really good questions, like how do unchurched people experience us as a church? I still think they had this idea that church was about getting people to come here. I don't think it is, but that was their fundamental way of looking at it. It was mine, too, at the time. Like, and they would ask these questions, like, how do unchurched people experience us? If it's foreign to them, how can we make it more familiar? Um, how can we be less churchy? Can we update the music? Can we shorten the sermon? No. Um, uh, and, and, and don't go too deep. We can't go too deep. This is entry-level stuff. If we're going to reach these kinds of people, they even took a poll. And this is kind of a famous thing in terms of their strategy when they started sharing with people how they did it, they took a poll and went door to door asking people, what kind of church would you go to? Why don't you go to church? What would you like in a church? Um, what don't you like about church? So they fashioned a church designed to attract people um, who didn't like church, who didn't go to church, who didn't know God, but, but were seeking, maybe, God. It became widely known as the seeker-sensitive Model. Some of you are familiar with that term. Some of you aren't. It was the ultimate attractional model, meaning we got it, you need it, come get it. It's here, and we're going to be as attractive to everyone as we can be, so they come. Um, it was marked by professionally produced music and drama. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Practical, accessible, digestible talks. Not like this one, but that's a good idea. Huh. Um, it was rooted in a transactional understanding of the gospel, I think, where if you believe the right thing about Jesus, um, so it's all about believing the right thing. And if you believe the right thing the, and, and say the magic words that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive me of my sins, I go to heaven when I die. It's all about getting out of hell and going to heaven and you believe the right thing and that's what does it, not a perspective of inviting people to follow Jesus into a entirely different kind of life that results in heaven when you die, but it's bringing the kingdom here now into my everyday life. 
and it worked, this model. In fact, people were coming from all over the place to find out how they did it, how they drew this massive crowd and gave birth to what we've come to know today as the megachurch. And, and there's, now there's a new term called gigachurch. That's like 10,000 or over. And it's, it's not evil. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not here to blow that up. But as a people who are part of the story of God, that's who we are, it's hard to forget um, that in the story of God, in Jesus' story, in this text, there was always a multitude. The multitude was... Mm, not that hard to get, um, especially if you could walk on water. So try that, Doug. Um, uh, there's always a multitude. And Jesus didn't hate the multitude. He didn't resent it. Oh, yeah, they're here again. Now, they, they're probably shallow. He didn't resent it. Um, he fed it, proclaimed the kingdom to it, healed the sick among it, and had compassion on the crowd. They were sheep without a shepherd. He cared about the crowd, but he never chased it. Um, pandered to it, never made it the goal as if that would define his success in part, he, in, in part because, and I'm trying to, I can't get inside Jesus' head, but I think and you can't trust the crowd. Um, not in an immoral way. It's just that you never really know who they are, why they're here, what they want. Are they fans or followers? Um, uh, they were just looking for free food. This is a happening place. That's why I'm here. Well, good. We better keep happening then. Well, that's tiring, especially when you're 70. <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry. Take that noise off the tape. <laughs> keep in mind something now. Let me spin you another thing. None of what I'm talking about is new. This is a new phenomenon with the Meg. No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, I told you a little bit earlier about Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the prophet, struggling with his people because he knew they were all excited about him. Why would he struggle with that? Because he had some substance, I think. Um, and they were spreading the word. This multitude of people who thought Ezekiel was amazing, they were spreading the word about this great prophet saying in verse 31 of Ezekiel 33, come now and hear this guy. You got to hear this guy. What the message is from his mouth. And people came as people come and they sat as people sit to hear the word that came from him. And behold, says God to the prophet Ezekiel 33, verse 32. Here's the bad news, Ezekiel. They, you are to them like a sensual song. Again, like one who has a beautiful voice, who plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. They're coming for free food. So what's a prophet supposed to do? Um, preach crappy sermons. <laughs> That'll fix it. Uh, quit singing. Quit using your gift. No, no. Uh, chase the multitude away. No. What if some in the multitude really are hearing? Because they are. What if some in the multitude really are doing what they're hearing? Because some of them are. Um, here's a little... Side note, you don't have to assume that big is bad. There's something wrong with the multitude. You don't have to drive by some church, or oh, they're just big, they must be. You, know, you don't know that. We don't know that. Um, some from the multitude come. 
But don't assume that everyone who's in the multitude is in. Um, be a little bit suspicious. Pastor, kind of talking to myself as a leader. Um, you, um, be a little suspicious why they're really here and what they really want. Because it could be free food, or they could want control. They came from a church, they tried to control, and they didn't get what they wanted, and maybe they'll get it here. Run for your life. Anyway, and when he knew all that was part of the crowd, he didn't dumb it down. Indeed, he ramped it up, clarifying even further what he meant by what he said. And when they argued even further with what he was saying, I'm the bread, I'm the bread of heaven, I'm the bread, come down in verse 52, he did it again until in verse 66, even his own disciples withdrew from him. This guy's nuts. <laughs> uh, and it's not that he didn't care about the crowd again. Or those who left. Oh, he just didn't care. I don't care. Go ahead. That's not the way he responded. He fed him, proclaimed the kingdom to him. He healed the sick among them, had compassion for them. But when they left, because they didn't really want the bread he had to offer, uh, what they wanted was free food. He didn't chase them. Because I got it. He didn't try to get him back or make it somehow more attractive with offers of free food. Uh, it was more like a declaration when they all left. He kind of, verse 68, when Peter says, where else am I going to go? That Jesus' declaration was, I'm not investing in the crowd. I don't hate the crowd. I'll preach, feed, care, but I'm not investing in the crowd. If they gather, we'll feed them. I'm investing in the twelve. By the way, they changed the world. And maybe, as people in the multitude learn to follow, others will want to follow too, and maybe the crowd will grow again. And if it does, that'll be great, but I won't be enamored by the crowd. So that's corporate stuff. A word for the church, if you will. A bigger crowd is not what we need. Remember, this is one of the last sermons I preached at Open Door. As I'm leaving, I'm use whatever you need when I go, you don't need a bigger crowd. That's, we need more followers, not more fans, um, and keep investing in the 12 who have hunger for the living bread. Final, more personal word, uh, just a distinction between a follower and a fan. I'll do it with a story. Um, several years ago at the Summer Olympics, uh, the world was kind of taken by storm and became enraptured by a young swimmer named Michael Phelps, you know, the name. And people were amazed. Um, at his Olympic performance in 2012 when he destroyed the competition, won eight gold medals, broke several world records, and now in 16, 2016, he's doing it again um, where he won five gold medals and three silver medals, and people loved him. I don't know if you can... I, I guess I'm old, so a lot of people don't remember this. I remember it. Um, they were amazed by him. They really admired him, and not just for his accomplishments, but for his recovery. I don't know if you remember this part of his story, but between 2012 and 2016, um, he acted like an idiot for a while and got into some trouble, but now he was back, and he'd actually grown up, and he had lots of fans, a cheering crowd. Um, but somewhere in those multitudes of fans, um, there were some people out there watching the Olympics differently than most of us, myself included, because I was just a fan. I wasn't going to do this next thing. Because what happened inside of some went beyond admiration because some people uh, watched Michael Phelps 
swim. And when they did, their hearts started pounding and their minds started racing. When it dawned on them that what Michael Phelps was doing, they could maybe do. Um, and that the way he was swimming, they could maybe learn. So that right now, there are, I think, possibly some people out there who a long time ago started watching videos and reading books about how, to, about how he trained and how he swam and what he ate and how he slept, and they started getting up early. Who would do that and go to the pool and actually swim laps? Lots and lots of laps and even find a coach because they had actually come to believe that they could be like Michael Phelps. What they, whether they could or not is a whole other thing. Um, but I think there's probably some kids out there somewhere who have already done it and might be breaking his records. I don't follow swimming that much. Um, and whoever they are, wherever they are, if they even exist, here's what I know about them. They're not just admirers of Michael Phelps. They're not just fans. They're followers. They started following his way. Even of sleeping and eating, it's like what you do when you have a rabbi. You see... Beloved, in, in, in Matthew 5 and Mark 6 and Luke 4 and John 6, indeed in 22 different texts in the Gospels, we're told that a multitude gathered and they were all amazed and they were all speaking well of Jesus. They were his biggest fans. But somewhere in all of those crowds, and this is always true, Right in the middle of the multitude, something was stirring in the hearts of a few that went beyond admiration because as they watched what he did and they heard what he said, their hearts started pounding and their minds started racing. As it began to dawn on them that maybe, just maybe, the things that he's doing, I could do, and the things that he's saying, I could say, and the way he's living and loving, I could learn to live and love that way. So there always are a few, including, I know, many of you, maybe all of you, who say, I've just got to have it. Not just the theology in my head, and isn't Jesus great? I want to be like him by the power of the Spirit. Indeed, I would rather have what this man has to offer and give up everything the world has to offer, but have to give up that man and his way of living and loving and being in the world. Someone who talks like that, I'd rather have him than any. That is not the language of a fan. That's the language of a follower. Final word. I promise this time. You can't do it alone. Being a follower of Jesus, you can't do that alone. You'll need some help, and not just God's help, which you will surely have God's help. You'll need to be with people who want what you want. And it's more than just going to church to check off the box of my religious duty. You need to find some people who want what you want and love what you love and who you love who are on the same journey of learning how to be a follower not just a fan, so I don't know how you do it. Get in a small group of followers, not fans. Um, find a church. I don't know, like this one. Um, it, it matters what church you go to, a lot, for things like this, because it can help people become a follower. 
of Jesus and not just a fan and not just settle for that and, and, and find some people who out there who aren't like you, who don't look like you or think like you and learn to love them like even though they're not like you. And, and maybe just start swimming laps. That's a metaphor you need to play with. I don't know what the discipleship, just start getting up early and being with God and start swimming laps and find a mentor who's, who's not an idiot. Find a mentor who's not an idiot. And I just wanted to lighten it up as I close. And I got a better laugh in the first service. I think, anyway. Mm. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you for um, the direction of this church, the hope of this church, the, the life of your spirit in this church, the desire of the people in this church to follow you. Um, and, and, and I pray that you would stir up those kinds of passions among us more and more and more and more. For such a time as this is needed more than ever and we pray that be so among us in Jesus' name.